Hey, Miles, remember that time Polaris went evil? Uh, you're gonna have to narrow it down, Jay. Oh, you know, um, after Havoc left her at the altar. Oh, right, because of that nurse he had a dream affair with? Exactly, and Polaris went full villain, like Magneto helmet and all. Where'd she get Magneto's helmet? She made her own. I mean, okay, I guess she could, yeah. Out of flatware. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 381 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the government, or at least a team of mutants that works for them. For now. Exactly. So this is an X-Factor episode, as you uh, might have already gathered, and this is an X-Factor episode where, like, some stuff actually happens, which hasn't always been the case in this run of X-Factor. It's felt a little bit like it was just sort of killing time sometimes, but I was actually pretty impressed with the issues we're going to be talking about tonight. Yeah, X-Factor has spent a while in kind of a holding pattern as it shuffled through writers and got, got kind of got its footing again, and now it actually seems to be moving. Yes, indeed. But before we talk about to where it is moving, maybe we should talk about where it's been. Now, this is the second iteration of X-Factor, and this version is the government's very own mutant super team. However, after a series of questionable events, things like discovering that the government was running a new Sentinel program and funding the development of a Hound program, X-Factor isn't so sure about the nature of that relationship or what they want it to be going forward. These days, technologist and former shaman Forge runs the show, with longtime X-Factor member Polaris as his second in command. Uh, recent recruits are the bestial but polite Wild Child, formerly of the Canadian Super Team Alpha Flight, and Shard Bishop, who's basically the sister of the X-Men Bishop, except actually she's a hard light hologram based on a hard drive full of her memories and personality traits Bishop brought back with him from the future. It's a whole thing. Rounding out the team are two former, well, okay, let's be real, kind of former, supervillains, the shapeshifting Mystique and the murderous Sabretooth. They're not really there by choice, and the rest of X-Factor isn't a fan either. Some of X-Factor's previous members are going to figure in pretty heavily to this arc as well. Former team leader Havoc recently spent some time brainwashed by the villainous Dark Beast, but with Dark Beast in government custody, he's his own man again, and he's using that new freedom to, uh, apparently lead the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's choice. Yes, indeed. As for other members, Strong Guy had a heart attack right before the Age of Apocalypse and has been in a coma ever since, and his best friend Multiple Man, Jamie Madrox, long thought dead from the Legacy Virus, turned out to have been fine, if temporarily amnesiac, thanks to the whole, you know, multiple thing. And now the wheels that have been spinning for a few issues finally get some traction. That takes us to X-Factor number 131, Brotherhood. It was written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Art Tabere, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So we open with Havoc having a recurring nightmare. Every figure who's ever controlled or manipulated him is crowded around him to tell him how little agency he's ever really had. And I love the visual. Like, you know, the whole looming figures yelling at you, that's, that's a trope. But these looming figures are all holding on to all of these different strands of ribbon, all of which connect at Havoc's neck into the Malice Choker. Jay, do you want to talk about Malice and what her deal is? Malice is a sentient, malevolent uh, necklace, a choker, uh, which possesses the people wearing it. Or possibly a mutant connected to the Choker, it's unclear. But yeah, Havoc was possessed by Malice for a while, and so this is just such a perfect fusion of metaphor and history, and I love it. And I gotta say, these these dream folks kinda have his number, as Magneto says. Whether it was the living Pharaoh, Mr. Sinister, or McCoy the Dark Beast, or one of the many others... Someone was always controlling what you said and did. And then for years, you blindly followed Charles Xavier's peaceful dream of mutant and human coexistence. 
But deep down inside, you knew my way, the way of homo superior dominance over the weaker race of mankind, was that which you longed to follow. Xavier follows up. Magneto is right, Alex. You have always looked to others for guidance of your actions. You allowed your mind to be controlled by others because you could not control it yourself. Yeah, harsh, but he's not wrong. It does keep happening, yeah. I mean, even with Xavier, and Magneto, and Mr. Sinister, and the living freaking monolith, and Dark Beast, and the Malice Choker all pictured here, that's not even including Eric the Red, the Shi'ar one, not the Cyclops one or the Magneto one, arguably Madeline Pryor the Goblin Queen, being rewritten by the Siege Perilous, and at least being heavily manipulated by Scarlet. Like, none of them are here. I mean, there wouldn't be enough room even on this two-page spread. Boy's brain should have a handle. Right? So, Alex wakes up with a giant plasma blast just as a giant Scott crushes him to death. He is currently camping out in the Morlock tunnels, um, being angsty and feeling that someone, and that that someone is probably him, needs to take action because the situation of mutants in the world is really fucked up and yes, something's gotta give. Couple things here. I really appreciate artistically that when Havoc wakes up and just sort of starts up from his makeshift bed, the lines of the art are much rougher. They're less kind of clean and almost cel-shaded. He's more stubbly. His face has more wrinkles and lines in it. I like that real life is dirtier and more complex and therefore harder to process than even those nightmarish dreams he's been having. It's complicated, and that's reflected visually, which is awesome. I also really dig the presentation of a bunch of newspaper panels in the background to kind of sum up all the things that Havoc feels overwhelmed by, all the things that are wrong with the world, the various anti-mutant sentiment, and the causes of it. Those are done in these diagonal panels behind him, and the fact that they're all overlapping, and the fact that the panels are diagonal so we only read bits and pieces of the black and white headlines— That almost makes it kind of clear just how omnipresent this stuff is, that it's so ubiquitous that you can't really get a full picture of any of it. It's just one thing after another after another overlapping into this, like, cacophony of anti-mutant hysteria. I feel somewhat pettily that that layout would have worked better had it not been in parallel diagonal stripes. That, That may be true. So what you're saying is it works, but it could work better. Exactly. Now, speaking of of dubious choices, I want to talk about Alex's conviction that he is the only one who can do the the entirely nebulous thing that is necessary to be done at this point. You know, I kind of like that. I'm not saying he's right. He is absolutely not right. But Alex has spent so long searching for purpose and searching for an identity of his own that I could see him creating and clinging to this, like, grandiloquent, impossible dream of being this mutant savior, of succeeding where the X-Men and X-Factor and X-Force and even the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or the Mutant Liberation Front couldn't. Like, he just wants to be something important. He wants to accomplish something, well, and he wants to lead something. He, wa- he wants to be outside of anyone else's shadow, which is the only explanation that really sticks hard with me on this. Um, because, like, we've never really seen him have that much ego, that much of, like, I am the only person who can conceivably save the world right now in situations where he is not, in fact, the only person who can conceivably save the world, which do come up now and again. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's X-Men. But this is, again, this is odd, because this is this is what he's specifically shooting for, and we'll get more detail about it later, seems like something that the X-Men are already poised precisely to do. Yeah, yeah, and you could chalk this up in part to his mind being mush from all of the various mind control, uh, and just, you know, stress, simply. You could look into the future where this whole thing is going to be retcons to an extent, and think of that maybe that's why it's kind of muddled up, but... Yeah, I mean, the fact is, Alex has been through some shit, and his method of coping seems to be, you know, tilting at anti-mutant windmills. Now, by remarkable coincidence, Alex's latest outburst has broken through a wall and opened up Dark Beast's old lab, which has equipment that'll let Alex track down Dark Beast in government custody. Wait, wait, wait. He he found this by busting down a wall he really was a member of x factor i think there's our clue that he's still a hero only heroes bust down walls to get where they're going okay that's not true 
That's not even a little bit true. Well, okay, but you must admit, X-Factor does break down a surprising number of walls for one heroic team. Always have. Now, Alex doesn't really remember much from his time controlled by Dark Beast, but he feels that he was somehow drawn here. And the specific location that he tracks Dark Beast to is kind of great. It is described as... A government holding facility so secret if we told you where it was located, we'd have to kill you. Which I guess is as good a way as any to get out of having to do any kind of background research about locations. Wait, Jay, if if the writers and editors of this comic told us where it was, they'd have to kill us? The readers? That seems bad for business. Especially if you consider the, the circulation of the X-Books in the late 90s. I know. Although, you know, Marvel did file for bankruptcy around this time. Maybe it's because they murdered a bunch of their readers. This horrible conspiracy theory starts here, folks. Anyway, uh, so what about Dark Beast? So, Dark Beast is biding his time in prison, whistling cheerfully and biting off the thumb of one of the goons who shows up to torture him into stopping. And, you know, I really expected that thumb to have some significance later, like getting used on a fingerprint pad or something, but it did not. It was just, it was an entirely, entirely pointless thumb. Yeah, it was like a Chekhov's thumb situation. What disappoints me even more is that this is Hank McCoy. Like, yes, it's Dark Beast, but it is still a version of Hank McCoy, and he didn't make a single reference about the whole do you bite your thumb at me, sir, thing from Romeo and Juliet. Come on, it's right there, Hank, in your mouth. Maybe that's why he didn't make the, he make the reference. His mouth was full of thumb. Listen, Dark Beast is a horrible genocidal monster, and I feel like being rude enough to talk with his mouth full is within his, his purview of acceptable behavior. Valid. Now, the the guards don't think it's acceptable behavior, and the only thing that stops them from killing him is a higher-up named Barnes with very anime bangs. And Barnes fascinates me because she is clearly set up as either someone we should already know or who will later be important, and she's heavily implied to be from the future, but I don't think she ever shows up again. Yeah, there's some line about this being her past, and so it's really important she gets it right. And that hair, I mean— no minor meaningless character has hair that ridiculous. We're talking like Ashley Riot from Vagrant Story. We're talking the ants from A Bug's Life. Like, these are giant antennae of anime-tacular hair. Like, her her peripheral vision is constantly going to be obscured, or even just the vision right in front of her. She'll be distracted by her hair just going back and forth as she walks. It's astonishing, and I love it. Maybe that's how everyone wears it in the future. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, like, the whole emo fashion thing does involve having your hair uh, over one eye so you can barely see, so maybe this is just, you know, a, a version of that trend coming around again in the mysterious future that Barnes probably comes from that's never mentioned. She's also a baseline human, which means she's not from the group I originally thought she might be from, which I'm not going to name because it comes up pretty soon. And yeah, she, she's just she's just this one-off character who is implied to have this extremely rich backstory. I went to the Marvel database to look her up, and her name isn't even a hyperlink. There is no article about this character, and there are articles about some very obscure characters. She doesn't even have a first name. Maybe maybe she's like Mario, and her name is Barnes Barnes. So anyway, Havoc breaks into the unnamed prison, and Barnes gets Dark Beast out, and Havoc gets some narration that underlines my deep-seated belief that the world needs more Alex Summers Noir. As the smoke and debris settle from his dramatic entrance, Havoc continues on in silence. All resistance has temporarily fallen by the wayside, and he is left to deal with the harshest opponent of all, his own conscience. He thinks of the directions in which his life is heading, remembering the rage which followed the relapse of McCoy's dark mind control, how he lashed out at Polaris and then attacked an innocent civilian aircraft and attempted to kill his own brother. He knows that even after two such heinous acts, he would have been forgiven by both Polaris and X-Factor. Then, he could still claim another's will influenced his actions. But now, he acts on his own. And every step he takes moves him further and further away from any point of reconciliation. The biggest surprise to Alex Summers is how little he cares. And some credit to Jeff Matsuda here. Alex looks fucking cool. His 90s costume is, 
I don't know. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. It's basically the black bodysuit with the white concentric 2D circles that are always over it. But he's got one of those 90s head sock looking things, except spikier and angrier and impractical such that it must be pasted to his face. And he's got big, chunky red gloves and a red power harness overlapping the outfit. And it really does work to just make him look like this harsher, more villainous, very powerful, not streamlined villain. I like that combined with all of the ambiguity implied by the narration. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So he zaps Barnes and Dark Beast's getaway pod controls, forcing them to crash land, and it's implied here that he uses a plasma blast like an EMP. Does that make sense? I don't know. It's always been inconsistent how well Alex can control his powers, and a lot of the a lot of the time that's been because of the plot. Like, the reason he's back in that black containment suit is because he was starting to lose control of his powers again recently. But as far as being able to fine-tune his powers like that, that does seem odd. What also seems odd is when he eventually catches up to Barnes and Dark Beast, he shoots a plasma blast after them, but I guess he does it, like, really slow because they have this whole conversation while they are trying to outrun a goddamn plasma blast. I mean, that's that's totally in keeping with with comics in general. That is that is a trope as old as X-Men. I don't know, though. They're just running straight. And as you mentioned, Barnes is a baseline human, and I feel like a plasma blast would go faster than even a human sprint by, like, a lot. We've seen him fired at things that are really far away, and they get hit almost instantly. Obviously, he's got more precise control over his powers in this issue than we've ever seen him with before, so maybe he can control the... the you know, rate at which they advance. Maybe that's what that weird red harness thing is for. Maybe, or maybe it's just fashion. Now, Alex breaks out Fatale, the teleporter who's been working with Dark Beast, who's imprisoned in the same nameless prison, and he uses her to get Dark Beast, whom he recruits to the Brotherhood, but prevents from harming Barnes. Alex says, The Brotherhood is not about senseless killing. It is about assuring that mutants will live in peace, with themselves, with each other, and amongst humans. So let's talk a little bit about this whole Brotherhood thing, because you notice that Havoc only ever calls it the Brotherhood, not, say, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which, branding-wise, is is a good choice, I think. I think that's a very good choice. And he's clearly rebuilding this. I mean, he just recruited Fatale and now Dark Beast. I think he still has that Morlock ever that showed up the last time we saw him, who's that big yellow and pink guy who apparently, according to the internet, is made entirely of compressed brain tissue, which is awesome. Whoa. Right? But the name Brotherhood, that's interesting to me. Like, I'm thinking back to his nightmare, where right before his brother Cyclops kills him, Scott tells him, I am killing you in the name of Brotherhood. Yeah, that's right. Alex has some major, major sibling issues. He always has. Aside from being mind-controlled, that's probably the most well-known trait of Alex Summers. Well, that and never having finished his uh, degree, of course. And so it's interesting to me that he chooses the name Brotherhood, which is associated not only with that concept, but also with the idea of this chosen family of mutants accomplishing a specific goal. Usually, you know, being evil. In this case, it's a little more ambiguous. But I think that's kind of a cool choice. I don't know. What about you? I think it's interesting, and I think— I mean, I think one of the things that's really ironic about this is that he's really patterning himself after Cyclops. Again, despite saying that that's what he's pointedly not doing, he's setting himself up as the leader of this mutant group whose goal is basically identical to the goal of the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Of course, the whole thing is, like we alluded to earlier, eventually this will be revealed to have been an act. The whole thing, he's just been rebuilding the Brotherhood to essentially keep an eye on Dark Beast and prevent him from doing some really awful shit. Which, okay, I mean, to be honest, I only barely remember those issues, so uh, I'm not entirely sure. But what that does mean is that this whole issue, a lot of which takes place inside Havoc's head, kind of stops making sense. Like, unless Havoc is specifically deceiving the reader the way that Marvel Editorial was threatening the lives of the readers earlier— yeah, it's—that makes me wonder if the decision to have this be a ruse was a retcon. In fact, it makes me think that it, it must have been, because otherwise none of the narration in, in this issue would make sense. I mean, I do know this era was famous for editorial interference. Like, we haven't gotten to the Siegel and Kelly runs of X-Men and Uncanny— 
But part of why those runs were so short, part of why uh, Claremont's return and Alan Davis's run went the way they did was that Marvel editorial was heavily, heavily involved in this area and had a lot of mandates as far as what had to happen for the line to go in the direction they wanted it to go. So maybe that's an example of that. Maybe it's just an example of the mid to late 90s being very disorganized in terms of plot and dropped plot threads. I don't know. Either way, that brings us to X-Factor number 132, Breakaway. This issue is written, again, by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Art to Bear, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this, at last, is the first part of the X-Factor Underground arc, which is a legit major turning point. And I really appreciate that the book, after building up for so long, for years at this point, to X-Factor not trusting their bosses at all, finally does something with it. Have they ever really trusted their bosses? Uh, no, but this issue is a bit of a, a breaking point, as we'll get to. But before we do, this cover. I love this cover. The characters are all shadowed, looking badass straight at the reader, who presumably is already scared enough by Marvel Editorial and now is even more scared. It actually reminds me a lot of that classic cover to Uncanny number 210, the one that says, come on, mess with us, make our day, and has all the X-Men posed kind of similarly. The one that was parodied in the ad for the Bullwinkle and Rocky comics that had Bullwinkle and Rocky and all of their friends as the X-Men in that pose with the same phrase. I have that poster and I love it. Damn. Anyway, it's really cool. And the first scene carries on this visual drama as Forge and Polaris and Mystique all head into a government building, and they're doing this, like, arms crossed, all in shadow, posing their way in thing. They're like noir government-employed Charlie's Angels, and it's rad. The shadow situation in this scene is pretty funny because we we get the team in shadow and then we get their 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 the government guy they're talking to completely in shadow despite the fact that everyone around him is well lit you know the lighting design in this government office is either very very good or very very bad i guess it kind of depends on what their goals were but it's quite impressive yeah because val cooper is fully lit like six inches away from this entirely shadowed government man that government man thinks that Forge and Polaris are here to turn over Mystique, their prisoner, but nah, they're here to quit. And they've got a CD-ROM explaining exactly why, and Forge just keeps on saying CD-ROM over and over again, and it's funnier every time he says CD-ROM. Hey, listen, that was a power phrase back in the 90s. It sounded cool and impressive, and the more you said it, the cooler and more impressive it sounded. That is incorrect. I was there. Okay, fine. I guess CD-ROMs were only actually super cool in, like, the early 90s. But then they really were. Like, you could have Mist on them. I loved Mist. If you really wanted to be impressive, it would have been on a CDRW. Oh, I don't think those were really a, a thing for a couple years after this. At least not, you know, cheap. And even then, they never really worked quite right. They had so much promise. Yeah, but he's Forge. Uh, true, true. Although Forge is less like that type of futurist, he would be more the kind of guy that would build the equivalent of a CD-ROM as some giant machine that he built out of, like, the scrap metal at the bottom of a trash compactor. So, a Laserdisc. Hey, Laserdiscs are cool. Anyway, Forge lays it all out, all the reasons he stopped trusting the government, and... There's a really nicely designed page here. Matsuda does such a good job in these three issues. Like, I don't know if he's just leveled up since last time or if we're just appreciating him more based on more exposure. But there's this great series of panels all in It's the Past Blue of the various things that have happened. The break-in to X-Factor's Falls Edge base by the government, the prisoner-like debriefings they've had, the bad guys joining the team, Xavier's arrest, mutants being blamed for Graydon Creed's death, and it all ends very dramatically in a panel in the corner of a burning U.S. flag. You know what? Go hard, comic visuals. Like, subtlety is for suckers. I mean, I kind of mean that unironically in this case. I think it's very good to be that overt. I mean, the last comic that I wrote had an image of Captain America's shield and the shattered remains of the Liberty Bell, I am not allowed to give anyone else shit out for overt symbolism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listeners, if you're not aware, not only did Jay write that amazing Cyclops one-shot for Marvel, but he also wrote on Marvel Unlimited, if you're a subscriber to that, a Captain America miniseries that was pretty awesome. Pretty much starts with that. Yeah. 
So, yeah, uh, the half of X-Factor who's here are leaving. Um, Forge says they're going to take Mystique and Sabretooth with them, and that if the government gives them any shit, they're going to blackmail the hell out of them. All I can think of is the the last time you're going to see these moment from Arrested Development, only it's him just holding up Sabretooth and Mystique by the scruffs of their neck. <laughs> that is amazing. And see, now I'm just thinking of Judy Greer opening up her shirt, and instead of bare breasts, it's just Sabretooth and Mystique's faces. Wow. That would have been a twist. You know, it really would have. Nah, if uh, some random comedy is going to do a bunch of X-Men references, it's going to be Archer, not Arrested Development. Fair, fair. Ah, but Judy Greer is also an archer. You know, that's that's a good point. Who would she play in X-Men? Like, the greater X-Line, who would Judy Greer play well? Well, she's already part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wait, she is? Yeah. She's Ant-Man's ex-wife. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Well, well, that's not very exciting. Uh, I don't know. I, uh... I kind of like to see her as Moira McTaggart. It's a little out of her standard wheelhouse, but I think she could pull it off. I, I don't even start to know how to feel about that idea. I feel great. I think she would be a phenomenal Boom Boom. Yeah, I rescind my vote. Boom Boom, all the way. Completely agree. Anyway, there's this great bit as after Forge delivers his ultimatum, the shadowy government man, literally shadowy, snaps the CD-ROM in half and pl- tries to place them all under arrest. But, like... Polaris just sort of rolls her eyes and magnetizes all of the agent's guns to the magnetic fields around their flesh, and then Forge pulls out another CD-ROM with the same stuff on it to give to Shadowy Government Man. Like, I appreciate that Forge predicted correctly that the his first attempt at delivering terms would be broken, and so he needed to have a second with him that is delightful. He's just got stacks of them in his, his cargo pants. Yup. Like a case full of business cards they're like aol cds he's just handing them out to everyone (laughs) huh uh jay i got this thing in the mail and it's from a guy named forge and he says he quits i don't understand makes an okay coaster oh yeah fair enough and as the team leaves val cooper confronts them she's like what the hell i thought we were friends like we worked together for ages why didn't you even check in with me about this to which forge responds Because, Dr. Cooper, it didn't concern you. This is a mutant thing, and the last time I checked, you, no matter how much you might want to be, are not one of us. And also because she's made it extremely clear that they can't trust her. There is that. So, yeah, X-Factor has quit, thanks to that backup CD-ROM. The shadowy government knows all about it. So what do they do with their newfound independence? Well, the first stop, um, Forge and Mystique head to the Chase residence. This is this is the home of Trevor Chase, the kid who was attacked and beaten by anti-mutant, um, by an anti-mutant militia a few issues ago. Yeah, that was back in number one twenty-seven. And here, she adopts her old Raven Darkholm identity. This was the identity under which she worked for the government. This was also generally her alter ego when she and Destiny were together. Uh, Yeah, and when she worked with Val Cooper specifically. And in fact, we'll later find out that Trevor Chase is a descendant of Destiny, and that's part of why Mystique is so concerned with taking care of this random little kid. Well, a family member. I think he's a nephew. Huh, I thought he was a more direct descendant. Well, whatever. Anyway, they're related, and Mystique misses her dead wife, understandably, and so is trying to take care of people who are important to Destiny. Which is cool. So, Trevor has been kidnapped, and the cops say they can't do anything for 24 hours after after his disappearance because he might have he might have voluntarily run away despite the fact that his mom heard him being kidnapped from the other room. Also, from what I understand, that whole the cops can't do anything for 24 hours thing is totally a myth. Yeah, it's completely made up, especially if it's a minor. Yeah. And so, um, you know, despite our uh, documentedly mixed feelings about law enforcement, um, if someone that you're worried about is missing, you should report that like immediately. And if the cops say they can't do anything for 24 hours, they mean they won't. Yes, can't and won't are uh, importantly distinguished in this case. So in Arlington Cemetery, Jamie Madrux is talking to his own grave, and in the first panel in which we see it, his name is misspelt on it. To be fair, Marvel has a long and storied history of being unable to decide whether his name is spelled J-A-M-I-E or J-A-I-M-E. 
I I love the idea that this is his supervillain origin, that he comes back. Not only is he dead, but his name is misspelled on his fucking gravestone. Like, this is, I, I mean, this is something that I feel like everyone with my surname has to worry about at least once in their life, like in sort of those 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 vague, you know, here are the things that could go terribly wrong ways. So I, I, I feel this one. Somebody refers to you as Mr. Eddington one more time, and that's it. World's gotta go. Well, no, I mean, I'm imagining, like, coming back, seeing my own gravestone, and having it have an extra D. <laughs> yup. If it was at the front, you would be deaded in, which would be appropriate for a tombstone. Right, see, that would actually be kind of funny. Yeah. But no, and they, they, they get it right later on when it's when you can see the whole gravestone, but it's definitely spelled J-A-I-M-E on the first first panel it's in. Whoops. But yeah, he's reminiscing to uh, his dupe's corpse, I guess, about the old fun X-Factor days, which are now all gone. And this is something I love about Jamie coming back to the book, because in the Howard Mackey run, X-Factor's gotten a lot darker. Like, Peter David's government-sponsored team was really fun. Bad stuff happened, but it was kind of a goofy, fun book. And these days, it is dour, dour, dour. And so having a character actually commenting on that, almost being an audience surrogate, I, I like. Well, and Madrox is the perfect one for that, not only from for his recent absence, but because he was so much at the center of the lightheartedness of the previous version of the team. Yeah, in fact, it was his apparent death with number 100 that I think was the beginning of that shift. So he also mentions that these days he never goes out without, without at least a couple of duplicates so that at least one will survive if something happens, which is odd to me because you'd think he'd want to scatter his duplicates around if that was his concern. Yeah, once again, it's kind of unclear exactly how Madrox's powers work, especially when it comes to how to kill him or not kill him. Like, for a long time, we thought that there was a prime Madrox, and if that one died, that was it for all of them. His excuse for coming back from the dead this time was that, no, that's not the case. If any Madrox survives, that's enough. Later on, we'll go back to the Madrox Prime thing. It's very inconsistent. I wish they would just pick one, and honestly, I wish they would pick the one where any dupe is equally valid, because I think it's more interesting. Yeah, agreed. But he's not alone in this case, because the holographic continuity confusing shard is there. And I love the way she's dressed. She's in this, like, stylish pink and blue tracksuit with a pink Nike headband, a bright yellow scarf, and chunky red boots. Like, some of the fashion in Matsuda's art is really fun. Also substantially out of date, which is always sort of entertaining in comics. We're getting into the era where... Everyone perpetually dresses like it's the early 90s, and that just doesn't stop till the mid-aughts. You know, for Shard, that actually kind of makes a lot of sense, because she's time-displaced. I mean, I doubt she would really be able to tell the difference between, say, 1992 fashion and 1997 fashion. It's all Diana Warrior Princess to her. Exactly. Also, wait a minute. Shard's dressed this way here, but she's a hologram. Are her clothes part of the hologram? Could she just dress like however she felt like it, just based on changing her photons around? Because, man, if I could do that, I would abuse the living hell out of that. Capes and moon boots everywhere. Yeah, she's basically, she basically is an image inducer. That's pretty rad. Huh. But someone is watching, and Shard uses her laser blasts, or whatever they are, to threaten that person into showing themselves. And it's the other member of X-Factor we haven't seen, or one of them, Wild Child. Sporting his own Michael Jordan jacket and Nike Airs, because everyone's very branded in this comic. Although I guess in Generation X, Banshee always wears that Boston Celtics, Celtics? I don't know sports, uh, jacket. I believe it's Celtics if you're talking about the team. Um, yeah, this is also the era of no one paying attention to trademarks or copyrights in these comics. Yeah, they just didn't bother at all. Like, occasionally you'll see the name of a product obscured by a speech bubble or something, but usually they just sort of shrug and throw it in anyway. Or, you know scenes from movies or whatever. Shard is furious because Wild Child's presence there implies that Forge sent him as a spy. I may be an artificial life form to all of you, Forge's science experiment, but I am not going to put up with some kind of an ugly frack like you! You're real to me, Shard. You know that. And Madrox is satisfied. Shard's clearly on her side. He's gonna call her later. He trusts her. And of course, this turns out to have been faked and you know, set up, although Wildchild's feelings were hurt by the ugly thing. You know, he was supposed to be there to make Shard seem more trustworthy to Madrox. 
and he kind of wonders, you know, where are they going anyway? Because she clearly really likes him, despite the uh, hurtful insult during the play acting. And she's like, dude, I don't know. From what I understand, this is going to turn into my dark future. Forge thinks we can prevent it. I think we got to focus on that because that's more important than the feelings of a hologram girl and an Alpha Flight member. A hologram girl and whatever the hell you are. (laughs) I mean, an ugly frack, clearly. He does actually ask what a frack is. Now, meanwhile, stealthy government agents watch as Polaris and Sabretooth meet up with Wild Child and Shard at Fall's Edge, which promptly explodes, definitely killing everyone inside. And as Trevor Chase's kidnappers fire lasers at Forge and Mystique's car as they're driving away for a rescue, they swerve and drive off of a bridge, and their car explodes when it hits the water, and they're dead too! Everyone's dead! Uh, the they in question being Forge and Mystique, not the kidnappers. Uh, yes. So, uh, everyone's dead. The end, I guess. That's what you think, because now it's time for X-Factor number 133, Down Under. Written once again by Howard Mackey, penciled once again by Jeff Matsuda, inked once again by Art Tibert, colored once again by Glennis Oliver, and lettered once again by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Although the pencils are improperly credited to, uh, Eric Battle. Eric Battle's great, but, um, he didn't do this issue. So I was hoping that the title Down Under would mean that X-Factor would have followed in the X-Men's footsteps from the 80s by faking their own deaths and secretly moving into the Australian Outback base and having excellent costumes and adventures, but, uh, alas. Yeah, they got through the first step. I suppose so, but we don't know that yet. What we do know is that Val Cooper and a government agent named Bowser watch some government frogmen—I mean, not literal frogmen— uh, search the river for Forge and Mystique's bodies. So is 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 Agent Bowser the, the shadowy figure we saw before? Uh, no, nor is he the king of the Koopas, although he is very large and is a jerk. Um, we've actually seen him here and there over the last year or so of X-Factor. He's a government official who's largely been affiliated with the Hound program. His gimmick is that he flips coins all the time and is very mean. So he's bad news. Uh, he's pretty bad news, yeah. The Frogmen, uh, who, as I said, not actual Frogmen, that's more Count Nefarious' deal, or the Animator's deal, or Magneto's deal, that time he was in the Savage Land. Anyway, uh, they can't find the corpses of Forge and Mystique, so the whole group uh, decides to go off to the Falls Edge X-Factor base, along with some masked agents for security. And Bowser throws caution and policy to the wind. He wants to head inside... Despite the obvious danger, even though Val keeps on warning him that Forge was paranoid, the place is probably going to be incredibly booby-trapped. They've got to be more careful. They've got to be more careful. And he's like, nah, our soldiers are completely expendable. Let's do this. I mean, I think he's just distracted thinking about kidnapping Princess Peach. He can't really worry about his minions. Well, they give him plenty to worry about because as soon as they get in, one of them is impaled by spikes and dies in a pool of blood. And another falls down a trap door into a near bottomless pit. And two more are blown up by a hidden bomb, leaving one buried under heavy rubble and the other as just a pair of smoking boots. So can we talk about this? Because obviously this is supposed to be, you know, Forge's booby traps. These are not the kind of booby traps Forge sets. Now, he would be way more either elegant about it with, like, some tech that would just restrain his attackers so that he could then interrogate them or whatever, or they would be completely off the deep end and he would summon some horrible demon spirit to use his uh, the souls of his allies against a monster, um, like he did that one time. Yeah, this is weird. This seems uncharacteristic. So many things just seem off about this issue. And part of me, as I was reading it for the first time, was wondering... Does Howard Mackey just not know what the hell he's doing? Does he not know what book he's been writing? But, uh, no, actually, he very much does. Yeah, if this seems off to you, there's a good reason. So throughout all of this, Bowser, the not-king-of-the-not-Koopas, is undeterred. He is thrilled that Forge is dead and can no longer keep him from the technology that Forge refused to give the government. And if the place is this heavily trapped, it means there must be something really good. I mean, we've all played D&D. That makes sense. I don't know. I feel like when a place is trapped this heavily, it's your DM setting you up to find nothing. Oh, uh, well, maybe if it's like Tracy Hickman or something. 
But, uh, yeah, the, the hits just keep on coming. One agent gets caught in a gas trap and is melted into a graphically fleshy skeleton, and the last agent's hand is eaten right off by the corrosive gas. I actually love that panel. It's kind of comical. The agent just looks so surprised as he looks at the stump where his hand once was. And this is a gas that's labeled biohazard, and so it's it spreads fast, and Bowser freaks he and Val run out, and he orders the building the, the building sealed off, um, even trapping the handless agent who by then has lost a leg as well inside. So, yeah, you may have guessed that the six dead agents were all, in fact, the members of X-Factor in disguise. Meaning Val Cooper was in on the whole thing and just had that big conflict with X-Factor in the last issue for show, which I love. I always love when Val, who's normally a stick in the mud who does things by the book, just says, fuck it, the government are a bunch of jerks, I'm gonna work with my buds, but do it all, like, secret and manipulative-like. Yeah, Val hates a lot of things, but she doesn't hate any of them as much as she hates her bosses. She's a wonderful character. But okay, let's go down the list. So how did X-Factor fake their various deaths in various ways? Okay, Sabretooth didn't actually fake anything. He just got impaled with a bunch of spikes and then recovered later. Yeah, yeah, he complains that uh, his part in this play was the most painful. Uh, Wild Child was the one who fell down the hole, but he's super agile, so whatever. Let's see, Polaris got covered in rubble, but magnetically kept its weight off of her. Shard just dematerialized, which was when we saw that agent who got blown up except for smoking boots, which are a visual that will never not make me laugh. Mystique just turned herself into a skeleton with flesh melting off of it. I bet she had a great time doing that. Oh, I bet she lives for this stuff. And Forge, it was simple for him. He just popped off his prosthetic hand and prosthetic leg. So what I'm getting from all this is not only are X-Factor very clever, but they would throw a kick-ass haunted house. That's why they actually left the government. That's what they're going to do now. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're not trying to, like, you know, fix mutant-human coexistence or uncover shadowy conspiracies. They're just like, no, no, no. I mean, let's just wait until October and scare the crap out of some teenagers. Why wait? Good point. See, this is why Alex feels like he has to be the one to take action, because obviously X-Factor is, is going into the haunted house business. Uh, you know, to the book's credit, we were talking about how we were impressed with them committing to a uh, new premise. That is a pretty severe departure right there. I'm into it. Me too. Well, anyway, so having thoroughly faked their deaths, uh, the base is now so sealed off that Bowser wouldn't even let a survivor escape, which tells X-Factor, like, okay, our secrets are really safe in there. They didn't just fake their deaths, they all faked their deaths twice in a 24-hour period. That's gotta be a record even Xavier can't touch. Oh, he would be so proud of them. I would say, Havoc, for once, Professor X is as proud of you as he is of your brother, but no, you weren't there. Wah-wah. So we learn a little bit about X-Factor's plans now that they are A, free agents, and B, presumed dead. They're gonna start over... Re and rebuild X-Factor as a team using the XSE as a model. So the XSE, in case you have forgotten, are the Xavier Security Enforcers, formerly briefly and hilariously called the Xavier School Enfl Enforcers, implying that they're heavily armed hall monitors, which they basically are just kind of on a larger scale. Now, their job in the future that Bishop and Shard come from was basically to be the mutants who police the mutant community. Yeah, they were basically like the sort of okay way of doing the Hound program, who were, of course, brainwashed, tortured mutants used by humans to track down other mutants. Like, the XSE is the way that that can go in a better, if not by any means perfect, direction. So we know what Alex has been up to while everyone else was faking their deaths repeatedly. What about Madrox? Madrox goes to visit his old best friend Guido, strong guy, in a government hospital. Uh, I, he manages to get in by having two of his dupes have an extremely childish fight in the lobby so a third could sneak in to see Guido. It's great. And he jokes around with the unconscious Guido while conveniently recapping their history together for anyone who might have come in more recently than that run. Which would work out conveniently if it weren't for the fact that the person hiding in the room and overhearing all of this had been there, because he's Havoc. Yeah, and we know that Madrox has seen Havoc once before since Madrox came back from the dead. Havoc tried to recruit him, and once again, that happens here. Havoc says Madrox kind of 
owes him because Havoc tried to save Madrox's life back when he was dying of the legacy virus. Madrox points out that he failed. Yeah, it clearly didn't work out. I mean, what Havoc did was to give Madrox to a villain named Haven who said she could cure Madrox, which didn't work. To be fair, there weren't really any other options at the time. Still, still, Madrox remains absolutely unconvinced. Um, He ends up multiplying a lot of dupes, each to say no in a different way. Havoc points out that, well, with Fatal and Dark Beast, you know... He's really hoping that Jamie chooses to stand with him in the inevitable coming war. Madrox says, once again, no way, and leaves as the Brotherhood teleports away. And the last thing we see is Guido's comatose body twitching just a little. The hand moves just a little. Strong guy is coming back, my friends. But before he does, you've got questions. Solito7 asks on Tumblr, What's y'all's opinions on when different adaptations have mutants become non-mutants, or non-mutants become mutants? So I assume this is primarily in reference to a recent Marvel thing that I'm not going to name because of spoilers. It's also worth noting that this doesn't just happen in adaptations, it's happened a ton in the comics proper, so see Squirrel Girl, the Maximoff Twins, Cloak and Dagger, Franklin Richards, etc., etc., and as I've said before and will probably say again, I'm pretty much up for any change that facilitates a good story. It irritates me when it's clearly because one or another IP is being pushed over another and it feels kind of contrived, but if there's a solid narrative reason for it, rock on. That said, the retcon to make the Maximoffs non-mutants was not a solid reason. That was not a good story. That story should feel bad about itself. Wait, which one? Uh, I think it was in Uncanny Avengers at one point. It was this whole thing with the High Evolutionary. No, I mean which time that they were retconned to be non-mutants. Oh, the, uh, the most recent one. I preferred when... The Bobier twins were retconned to be elves for a little bit. Yeah, that was a thing that happened. Yup. But yeah, like, the line between mutant powers and non-mutant powers, it's always been a little arbitrary anyway. But these days, I guess the status does mean more. I mean, Krakoa is specifically a mutant nation. If you're not a mutant, you can't be resurrected. You can't go through the portals. But that said, like, non-mutants are also occasionally allowed on Krakoa, so it's still a little bit arbitrary. Like, really, the main effect seems to be whether a given character is on an X-team or a non-X-team. You know, the occasional long shot from the 80s aside. So, yeah, I think I'm with you. Like, if it's a good story, cool. Why not? I think playing with what exactly it is to be a mutant in terms of identity, in terms of genetics, in terms of whatever, is fun stuff to play with. As long as it's for a good reason. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I know it'll be a while until you reach them in coverage, but wondering if you have an opinion on the month Marvel did all the books as Nuff said. Oh, right. That was in, um, what, uh, 2002, I think? That was a month where there was no dialogue at all in any of Marvel's books. And it was interesting. Like, I think probably the most uh, famous issue from the X-Books and probably from that entire event was New X-Men number 121, right, from the Grant Morrison run? That was Jean Grey and Emma Frost's trip inside Cassandra Nova's mind to save Professor Xavier, and it was great. It was just so perfectly done, and so much of that was the incredible art. Frank Whiteley did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And we even got a really great homage-slash-sequel to that in 2020's Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost, where they went inside Storm's mind, and it was, like, the same format, and it was also really cool. That works really well for telepathic stuff. I don't remember the issue number, but I I recall really, really, really digging the Ultimate X-Men issue. Oh, God, was there one in the Ultimate line as well? I don't remember that at all. Yeah, and it was a Gambit story, and it was really beautifully done. Oh, that's rad as hell. I love it. Um, I also really liked Cable Number 100, uh, mainly because with the art being doing all of the storytelling work, Igor Cordy's art really got a chance to shine. Like, Cable as a series, I have mixed feelings about, but I will say, like, all of the art Igor Cordy does is just gorgeous. And there was also X-Force 123, which was after the book switched to being about the X-statics, you know, like the reality TV young adults. Um, that one was fun. It really did a good job of showcasing how simultaneously cool and bizarre that team and that premise were. Thanks in part to, uh, Dupe being heavily involved, you know, the green blob with his own language. So, yeah, that was a fun one. I- I'd love to see more gimmicks like that here and there. Like, you don't want to overdo something like that, but maybe every few years, just 
get a new premise, see what the different Marvel books do with it. Yeah, I love line-wide single-issue gimmicks like that. They're fun, they're a really good chance to let creative teams stretch in directions that they can't ordinarily or don't ordinarily have much opportunity to do in mainstream superhero comics. Do you have a favorite example of that? I mean, I think my favorite example of, of creators doing that isn't actually a line-wide gimmick at all. It's, it's, I mean, it's everyone's favorite example, which is the pizza dog issue of Hawkeye. Ha! <laughs> yes! Uh, more generally, in terms of, like, Marvel doing a thing for a month, I think my favorite example wasn't even content. It was covers. It was, I want to say, the 25th anniversary, where every single Marvel book just had a portrait of a character from that book with the same frame with all the Marvel characters in it. Like, New Mutants had that... Oh, that amazing border! Yeah, yeah, and New Mutants had that beautiful beautiful picture of Ilyana, and Classic X-Men had an awesome picture of Storm. Like, uh, the Thor picture that Walter Simonson did that month was incredible. It's my favorite portrait of Thor ever. I think Simonson may have done the larger border as well. Uh, he may have, yeah. He was doing a lot of work for Marvel around that time. I think he was doing X-Factor at the time, too. He was, yeah. Oh, so good. So good. Maybe we'll link to some of those in the visual companion. What's also good is that we're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So here's the angry Claremontian narrator. Audrey, anyone in your shoes would be proud to have made it as far as you have, especially given all that you've been through. I mean, it's a mess out there and... Okay, I, I'm sorry, I can't sell this. Look at it this way, Audrey. You can always take pride in the fact that at least you're not Reese Powell. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Spiral returns. As Excalibur takes its turn dealing with... Uh, the Crimson Dawn. Crimson Dawn.